Welcome to the Movers Mindset Podcast, where I interview movement enthusiasts to find out who they are, what they do, and why they do it. This week, Weena Politar shares her history of dance, her brief encounter with parkour, and how those experiences have led to where she is now. She unpacks her work with somatic therapy and the profound changes motherhood has brought to her life and practice. Weena reflects on her current interests in embodiment and impulse and discusses her search for what is next. Hello, I'm Craig Constantine. Hi, I'm Weena Politar. Weena Politar has been dancing professionally for the last 20 years of living in New York City. She found yoga in the late 90s, then yoga therapy, and most recently somatic experiencing. She has a private practice in the city where she offers reconnect somatic therapy sessions and continues to dance and perform. Welcome, Weena. Hi, happy to be here. Weena, I want to first put you on the map for people who may not know who you are. And I first heard your name when I was talking to Mark Turok, and he was discussing the original tribe group. And I'm wondering, can you just unpack a little bit about the story about how did you get involved with that and what's the backstory for your involvement there? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Mark was a bright-eyed student of mine. I taught in Williamsburg on the top floor of an old dance studio. Mm-hmm. And I taught a class that was, I don't, I've taught so many iterations <laughs> of this. It was something around core, mm-hmm. getting better, something. So Mark came in, and I would actually have no idea how he found that class. So that would be a question for him. But he showed up so enthusiastically, learning, asking questions. He was like a star student. And then after one class, he was like, hey, We would chat. We would like walk around and chat after class. And he was like, hey, I'm doing this parkour thing. And I was like, okay, what is it? He said, we run around, like we jump on stuff. And (laughs) you should come do it. Just come do it with me. And I was like, "Mm, okay. He's like, look, here's scaffolding. I'll shoot pictures. Let's just. And I was like, cool. Because I was coming from Streb. Do you know Streb? I've read of it, but unpack it for everybody else. So Streb is a dance company that started, let's see, Elizabeth Stubbs Streb started to choreograph in the 80s and she developed a very specific style of movement dance called pop action it's based on impact so the idea is that you're impacting surfaces with your whole body she has a ted talk there's a lot to talk about, about there we'll, yeah, we'll yeah, definitely yeah. find that right so you can look for her there and so in that company i toured internationally with them and we worked a lot with equipment apparatuses, jumping, falling, slamming, walls, trampolines, poles, planks, lots of stuff. So jumping up onto scaffolding was not unusual. The average random person would be like, jumping on scaffolding? And you're like, oh, been there, done that. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, let's just... And so we just started playing around. And then we kept talking about it. And then I remember him saying he wanted to start... He was going to quit his job and start a parkour I don't know if he called it a company or... Right, because that's the story. I don't, I don't want to turn it into the Mark podcast. Yeah, but I was... Actually a, there is a podcast about Mark, but yes, that's what he did. He had basically had, had a high-power job and was... Re- right. I don't want to say reinventing himself, but moving out into movement. Well, and he was such a dreamer in how he talked about it that Still I was is. like... Still I was is. like, cool, dude. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> Flash forward 15 years. No. And then I was sort of getting ready to leave Streb, but I still had a lot of that desire to move with that kind of intentionality, that kind of modality, a very visceral type of yeah, strength, speed, dynamic equipment. Those were sort of, that was my language. And so parkour was kind of a natural fit. So me and my roommate went to DC 
and did a whole weekend of parkour, mm. um, running around and filming and making, I think the one of the, yeah, yeah. I don't know the exact story. I actually have never was, seen it. <laughs> I have no idea what it looks like. I mean, Mark pulled a VHS tape. Okay. I mean, well, I was like, go. Oh, look at those yeah. things. He pulled a VHS tape out that had a printed cover on it, and there were yeah. a bunch of pictures and, that, and you're on there and he's on there. Yeah. And that kind of felt to me like the tribe got created sort of like as a, Oh, we should make this a thing after it really existed, which I think is the best way to create something is when it springs up organically. Right. So that, but he told me seems to yeah. <laughs> jive with what you're describing. Yeah. No. And I was struck mostly by the, I mean, I was older than the other people in the group. Mm -hmm. And I was struck by all of these kids. They're, first of all, they were all smart. They were amazing movers. They were super fun to be around. I mean, these are all people that you Mm -hmm. know now. Mm -hmm. And I look at them now, and I, it's not hard for me to remember what they were like 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. They were kids. These Mm -hmm. were like me and a bunch (laughs) of teenage boys. It was a little weird, and it was super fun, so... Yeah. So I know, because I've done more reading, but for everybody else, if I understand correctly, the work that Streb was doing, and I guess continues to do, that's Mm -hmm. that when you talk about somatic movement, it's the difference between, are we dancing, are we moving for our own, how we feel about the movement versus trying to present it visually for others. And I've always had this idea in the back of my head, like parkour calls to people because it's visceral. And most of the things that they've done haven't been that way. You're forced to look inward and perceive the weight and where your balance is and how is your body feeling in response to the things you're asking it to do. And it just seems like when you look back, doesn't that seem like an obvious thing for you to go into coming out of that dance experience? Like that's why it was such an easy transition is it's, you were already really doing it. You just hadn't tried to put it on obstacles. I'm just wondering out loud. Right. I mean, well, so here's the thing. Streb brought me, I felt I was sort of at a crossroads of going into commercial dance or going to the modern dance world. And I auditioned for Streb and got an apprenticeship and then was hired. And it was the first time in my life, I've always been very strong, and it was the first time I was in a dance environment where they said, use your muscles. And mm. I was like, oh, God, I'm home. <laughs> this whole thing of like, lift your leg with the underside. Yeah. I'm like, that's not how your fucking leg lifts. What are you talking about? Like, I'm using the muscle to lift... There's gravity. What do you, and now I understand what they were talking about, but like I, it didn't make mechanical sense. I came from a gymnastics background. I was a competitive gymnast when I was little. And so, and then I tried to untrain all of that. And I found two homes. One was West African dance. That was the first company I was ever in was West African. I went to the school I went to because they had African Mm. dance. It was low. It was muscular. It was rhythmic. I got it. And then I tried all this other sort of virtuosic dance, didn't feel at home, and then found Streb, and they were like, yeah, run into the wall, but like flex every muscle so that you protect your bones. So you're basically creating a buoyancy in your body by tightening all of your muscles. (laughs) That's how you're able (laughs) to save your organs and bones when you crash. And I was like, thank God, right? And I can get paid to do this? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, it blew my mind. And the other layer part of that is that that kind of patterning worked well through my evolution to a certain point. And then I had to stop because it was destructive. It was like I had to heal. Probably that's why I do what I do now. It took me about 10 years to let go of that approach to movement and body. It felt so natural. It felt like such an intuitive place to go. 
And then once I started unpacking that intuition or that impulse, I started to realize that that was survival. Those were survival mechanisms at play that worked great and were now kind of in the way of my own growth. And so it was a matter of like learning how to not flex all your muscles, learning how to not be fearless, learning how to be vulnerable and soft and afraid, right? But so I had little inklings of that happening towards the end of my stay with Streb, and that's sort of when parkour came in. And, and part of the overlap was, and it was kind of a perfect overlap, was parkour in the same way that I had to really deal with fear a lot in Streb. Mm-hmm. I had to deal with pain or reframing high sensation, mm-hmm. which that's a whole other conversation I talked about for a long time. But some of the concepts that parkour was unpacking Like, what does it mean to be afraid to do this thing? Or what does it mean to fail? Or what does it mean to succeed? Or what's what's my own authentic way through this landscape? Those are really encouraged questions in Streb also. Like, here's, we would walk in and there'd be like some crazy piece of equipment. And she'd Mm -hmm. be like, what would you do on it? Right. You're like, uh. Who does this remind us of? (laughs) This reminds us of what the parkour people love to do with the parkour vision. Yeah. So that was the whole idea. And. She, there's a very specific culture in Streb, so that out of that culture comes specific things, mm-hmm. which are different, I think, from parkour. But there is a very similar approach in like, well, what, how can I be in this space? How can I move through this space? How can I work with that equipment? Or what's, what would be exciting? Or how can I push myself into a new place? Or how does that person do it? Show me. There's right. a lot of Twice teaching big, each other. Half as tall, right? Yeah. She's not doing... I mean, she does her moves, but it's other people in the company that teach you or train you or ask you to do stuff. So that, mm. that's sort of how that worked. And that's how it happened in parkour for Mark to be like, there are these stairs and there's this thing. And he would have kind of an idea of how to go through it. And I'd be like, what if we, we could do this too? Mm. It was a, a sort of natural process. And the thing that I think parkour then led me to my next step, which was more choice, more personal investigation about what would I do or what would mm. feel good to me? And that's like a still a meaty question an that ongoing, I... Oh, an yeah. ongoing question, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned contact improv and my ears perked up because there's this crazy thing called Parkon, which mm-hmm. is contact improv people met parkour mm-hmm. and just smashed it together. And that's run by Andrew Seseno, S-U-S-E-N-O, I think it is, out of Brooklyn and in New York City. And I'm just wondering, do you want to unpack some of what normal contact improv is and is that is that something that's really part of your current journey or is it just it's the contact that interests you or is it the improv that interests you or like what drew you to contact improv well when i studied dance we studied contact improv and it felt really good it was really fun and then i spent a long period of my professional life making fun of it you know (laughs) that was like what we did you know, when you start to get into form and technique. And then that bit me in the ass because now all I do is improv. Mm-hmm. I don't know much about Parkon outside of what you've told me and I've read here right. and there. I've seen a little bit of it. And in my head, I'm like, this is like modern dancers. This is just modern dance. Mm. They're doing. It's been around. Mm-hmm. We're just reframing it. And that's cool. Like, fine. If it's a frame that invites other people yeah, in. That's a good thing. Yeah, for sure. So We've talked about your first experience with parkour and, mm-hmm. and like how that came out about, came about as part of your past dance experience. But the next obvious question is what are you doing now? Like what, what is somatic yeah. therapy for those who don't know what somatic means in that context? Mm-hmm. So I danced and performed in a couple different companies after Streb 
and each one sort of gave me a different angle on, I think what my intention was like, I wanted to flesh out my dancing history because Streb feels like part of it. Mm -hmm. But then there were these pretty significant other experiences that led me closer to what I'm doing now. Okay. And those company experiences were, were dance and dance theater and performing all around. And, um, you know, yoga, we spoke a little bit. It's like not, I'm not like a yoga person. There's so many experts out there. Mm -hmm. I'm not one of them. But it was a place where something would happen. So I would take a class every once in a while. And I, I really took it purely sort of like, I need to stretch. Like I'd go run six miles and then show up at yoga, sweaty and panting on the mat. Like, okay, let's do this. You know, people are looking at me like, what the, what is wrong with her? You know, <laughs> chill out. So then we would start yoga and it was just like nailing every you pose. You like power, um, I forget what the actual name for power yoga is. Yeah. It wasn't even power yoga, but that's how I did it. It was like Weena's <laughs> version of it. Yeah. And it was just about like getting it so good and right. And there is something so pleasing about that for yeah. sure, like lining up that stuff. But then it was like child's pose for a moment and then there was nothing to do but mm-hmm. be with Weena right. and a wave of emotion would come up and I was like whoa what is that and I remember my yoga teacher who I trusted quite a bit I also babysat for her child so she said I'm doing this thing why don't you come have a session I have to practice now if she had said it was yoga therapy I would have been like yeah no not my jam but she didn't (laughs) and I went and it was like blew my mind and it was the experience of I had been in talk therapy for many years that was like a real comfortable place for me to go Connecting dots. Why is this? Noticing patterns. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. That's very cerebral. Uh, very as opposed cerebral. to like if you get into yin yoga or something, right? Right. So then all of a sudden my body was there. And it wasn't about the stories. It was not about content. There was talking, but there was contact. And it was the question was, what's happening now? And she would ask it over and over again. And I had to answer it. What was funny is it I had a big learning curve. So it, she'd say, what's happening now? I don't know. That's a good question. (laughs) And then I would be off and running. So I'd start with now and it would spin me into some elaborate story Mm. of whatever, which I enjoyed being up there. And, you know, it was like, it's like painting. I was like getting all this stuff out and then put it here and organize that and that. And I'm completely no longer present present with her contact, her hand on my shoulder. And it was over, I did it for eight years. I received that work. Mm. And recognized that as I was working with people one-on-one, it was coming in more and more and more. And I'm like, oh, I think I need to go do this training. Hmm. And so I did it. It's called Phoenix Rising Yoga Therapy. And it's a little bit, it's like the overlap of body work and talk therapy. And it was um, an incredibly transformative experience for me. I, I think it came at the perfect time in my life. So it was in that process that I kind of started to unpack some of those patterns of like, grip every muscle, save yourself, right? right? And then I got to be with some of those impulses and long enough for the feelings beneath them to surface. And that's when I started to realize, oh man, there's like a lot there. So I did that work and I had a private practice off of Union Square and that was where I just did Phoenix Rising, and I had a full practice. I also did, I always continued to work with people physically, training, and, and always dancing, too. And then I had my son. So I have two stepsons, and 
my son. I worked through that pregnancy. Actually, I was with a client when my water broke. That was fun. <laughs> I'm with what's happening now. Did you warn them? I oh, was like, can you ask me that question now? Because I'm, yeah. I have an important leaking. announcement to make, right? right. <laughs> so I was like, I, I think I might have said, no, I didn't. I was like, no, Weena, you can't say your water's broke. That's loaded, right? You're really coming into their work. <laughs> like, But that was like the part where I'm like, I, yeah, life is showing up in this session. Mm-hmm. We ended the session, and then I was like, yeah, no, I think this is happening. And it was two weeks early. That's why it was sort of a surprise. So then that's a whole other, I could talk about that, four days. I love talking about birth and babies and all that. And came back to my practice, but I started to recognize that it wasn't working. Phoenix Rising didn't feel like what I was doing anymore. Mm. A lot of the extras for me, once I had my own child and I was in a house with three boys and my husband, a lot of the extra just gets cut out. Mm -hmm. And so sort of what started to happen is it felt very extra, like... Like things you have to put energy into to maintain and you'd rather put the energy somewhere else? Uh, no, because it was income. It was extra for the people showing up. Like in my head, I'm like, you're fine. Go mm. live your life. Mm. Get out of the nest. Yeah, Fly. or like go run around or something. Like we can do this. And it's not that I wasn't, it was just that what was interesting is every session is always magic. Like it's the kind of work that I would leave and be like, I cannot believe I get paid to do this. Mm. I receive so much. This is not fair. I'm getting, yeah. Oh my God. It was just, and that magic shifted real quick. And it wasn't that it just became more work. It became like an exchange and I became very aware of the financial exchange of it. And it's not that I wasn't there or doing good work. I think I was, I think I was probably doing better work because I was a little more removed. Right. But what it called into question was like, what is it that you want to do? Like, where do you want the magic to be? And it, this could lead into a long conversation about being a mom and working. So long story short is I started to pull back from that and work less and work more with children. started doing a lot of work with kids. I started doing very specific dance process. Like I almost internally had this rule that I wouldn't work with someone who wasn't a parent because mm-hmm. they don't get it. Like, I don't want to have to not show up at rehearsal because I have a sick kid and have that person not get it. Yeah, judge you and not get it, right? So that shifted all of the pieces, and they sort of fell into a little bit of a different order. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. So now, (laughs) bring it up to now, I recognize that I I do want to continue doing one-on-one work. I'm very interested in children. And there's a new role, which feels a little bit like coming back to where we started with parkour. Mm -hmm. There's a new role crucial important piece of movement and physicality the real the tangible experience of having a body that I want to be involved in my work so as I start researching like what would that be there's dance therapy there's there's they're all great that's the thing they're kind of, like I would love and eat up any of them somatic experiencing was called to me because my teacher of eight years uses that with me and that really spoke to me it's incredibly effective. It's very specific. It's almost surgically precise in how you are bringing your client or the person you're with's moment attention in the moment to what's actually happening right now as I'm sitting across from you with this microphone and headphones. Like, we're right, right here. And we're bringing time and space to this. And that is like, feels almost like an education. I'm giving you things that you can then use. 
And that felt cool. And it continues to feel cool. I'm in my second year. I have a, was another that the, year. I don't want to interrupt your train of thought, but is that the first time that you had had that experience in that, I mean, not like on a particular day, but was that practice? Was that the first time that you had felt that or had you found that in other places? Say more about your question or like flesh it out. <laughs> so what was the name of the practice you were working? It was called... The, Phoenix Rising? Yeah, that, uh-huh. that, no, the somatic experience. Oh, somatic experiencing. So the somatic experiencing, when you first started doing that with your instructor... Was that the first time that you had experienced that sense of being brought to a moment just like that? Or had you seen glimpses of that maybe in the yoga that you had done or in progress? You had seen glimpses of it. And then this was like the most distilled, like this is like a turning point in your life. I'm like, wait a minute, like, is this the place where you found it the most? And that's what really made you want to go towards somatic experiencing? Yes. I felt challenged by it in a new way. Because then I'm like, going to say, now unpack that more so we can understand yeah. what that experience is. But go ahead. So challenged so Phoenix, in a new way. <laughs> Phoenix Rising, it was like, I am kind of a controlling person. Mm-hmm. Right? So I'm always playing we, these we lines. We a club for that. Right? Yeah. <laughs> totally on it. I'm in it. I run it. No. And so it's been a practice for me to learn. I go back and forth. I'm either in or out. Right. And so the dance for me is always like, part of what felt great about Phoenix Rising Yoga Therapy is you walk into a session with nothing. It's very like, I'm not there to diagnose or prescribe. I don't know what's going on with you. We're going to see what happens and I'm going to support you. It was very much a practice of following, which was beautiful and so necessary for me to learn how to do. It taught me how to listen. It taught me how to quiet all of my, you know, my cup getting real full. Mm -hmm. I had to keep dumping it out. Like, that's you. That's you. And you can go do that session. But this is... Craig's session. So you don't know. And continuing to tell myself, I don't know, and follow. And that felt really great. And it was a long time for me. It took a long time for me to learn how to do that. Then, I think it was partly around the kid time, I also had to recognize, like, I also do know things. I also have been doing this for a long time. Right. And, like, there's something, I think, for being a woman about standing up and having some authority in the wisdom that you own or have. And it doesn't, it's funny because I bristle. Uh, I remember very distinctly, like I was a big Tara Brock fan. I don't know if you know her work. Um, the name sounds familiar, but I don't know. Radical acceptance. Kind of- She's like amazing. She's amazing. So this is no, it's nothing to do with her. It's all me. I remember baby in the ergo walking out. Like I need to get out. I put, you know, let me just listen to some Tara Brock. And I was like, oh, my God, shut up. I couldn't. I was like, what is this dribble? Like, do things. It just had this really strong reaction against all of this, like, awareness and mindfulness. Like, because I was in complete survival mm-hmm. mode, I was, mm-hmm. like, trying to keep a kid alive right. and, like, function. And that seemed so extraneous, <laughs> like, unreachable for me. And I think that was part of it for me it was like coming around to it's not that it's at all extra it's, it's absolutely necessary, necessary right? oh completely <laughs> but like but it was it was eye opening to be like there's a combination of like yes and yes and yes that's a huge thing instead of yes but or or the other one no <laughs> right like no that's all good and you're right like you yeah. are in a mm-hmm. different stuff's coming out of your body, you're making food, you're feeding. I mean, like there's an enormous animal physical process happening right now. And that kind of investigation was just not reachable. And what it does is it allowed me to be like, there's also that. 
so Phoenix Rising, I learned to listen. I learned to follow. I learned the importance of showing up for yourself and what was happening, showing up for another person and, and not knowing, being willing to not know who they were and letting them, like supporting right. them, finding in, themselves. In the discovery, right? And then I just found like after being a mother and taking care of such like tangible, specific, worldly needs, like where is that? That he's to go here. We Somebody has to pick him up. I mean, that is your, your entire system is taken up with that kind of conversation language. So this extra layer just feels like. And so I had to kind of bridge some of that. I'm off of what I started talking about, which was about knowing things. But I think it was like that shift into being a mother brought me into my own sense of self and knowing, into my own knowledge base, brought me into an own sort of security of like, no, I know some things too. And I don't have to put everything I know and every part of who I am outside of the room. First of all, that's impossible. Right. Second of all, it's not always serving the session to pretend like I'm a blank yeah, slate. Not, uh, yeah, you're not projecting anything. The whole point of you being the instructor and the leader is to be projecting. But like I wasn't going to lead. I was like so afraid of leading because mm. I'm like intruding on their process and I really want it to be there for them and but at the same, it's not giving permission for them to show up fully if I'm not really there too. And so something about the way my teacher, he's a Sufi practitioner, so he has a lot, his education's bonkers long, and he's just an incredible, incredible human being. But he's incredible with me because he knows specifically how to deal with Weena and like when to bring that in. Right. He's kind of the person who's challenging me to, to lead more. And that is something I really like about somatic experiencing is I'm being asked to follow the moment, but I'm also the person holding the space. I'm also the person in charge of making sure that the person in front of me is safe. I'm leading them to an edge that they're willing to go to, and then I'm guiding them away from it. It's something called titration or pendulation. Mm -hmm. I take on a role of responsibility that's different, and that feels more authentically me now, Weena now. You brought up the idea of um, titration, which I, I love that word. That's a great word. Titration or the swinging, the pendulum idea of approaching something that's scary. And I think most people who do parkour immediately think, oh, this sounds like breaking the jump, but I don't want to go there. I want to go somewhere <laughs> completely different. You mentioned like 19 things that I thought were interesting, but one of them is you brought up the topic of motherhood and giving birth and how it changes your life at all the levels. And I think it's a very trite thing for me to say, yes, it seems to change your life because I have no point of reference for that experience. But I'm just wondering if you would want to unpack and talk about maybe now that you look back on that experience, if you can maybe give some perspective to, and I don't even know what time frame this suggests, like, is there like a six month window or an 18 month window or a three year window where like everything changed and you went from that, I don't have time and mental energy to do the big picture stuff. I'm all about direct actions. So I'm just wondering, is there like a time frame that would make sense to talk about? And if you want to pick at some of those details so that maybe somebody like me who's never going to experience that would have some idea of what is the mother's experience and how is that different from when you're not in that mother mode, you would be much more closer to a normal guy. You see where I'm going? Sort of. Um, <laughs> and I could always take a shorter yeah, yeah, stab yeah. at that, or we could just let it run. Tell me like where, it. like, so here, uh, what do you want to talk about? Well, so the problem is there's a dark spot in the corner of reality that I have no idea what's in the dark spot, yeah. right? And it, that's, that's motherhood, that's birth, that's mm -hmm. that whole, and you were just talking about it. And I was like, somebody with oh. a flashlight, right? Yeah, like, yeah, so yeah. here's somebody who not only knows, like any woman could talk about that 
what from mm-hmm. my point of view is a dark spot. But you've actually been in the. I, I don't mean dark like it's negative. No, no, no. Okay. It's just I can't see into it. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't mean it like negatively. So I'm just wondering. I would just be personally interested in knowing what is that experience like, and then when you are in that part of your life in that experience. How do you relate to people like me who not only aren't in that experience, but are never going to be in that experience? And mm-hmm. that's just like, I'm like, ooh, perspective that mm-hmm. I don't have and I have no access to. Yeah. That also doesn't answer your question, yeah. which is what I want to know about. No, I think, I think um, <laughs> so what I'm hearing is like some interest around that shift and like, what was that shift? Like, what's different now? Yeah. What is it like? Why is it different to be a mom and not be a mom? And like, what is the difference kind of? Yeah, that would, why didn't I say that? <laughs> no, I think I think it it's funny because I I'm on an information fast. Do you know what that? I know what it is. Okay, and this so is an excellent I just, idea. I just did it because I found myself very reactionary against a lot of information around the mom healing community because mm-hmm. I'm kind of a part of it. I have good friends who Kimberly Ann Johnson's one of them, just an incredible practitioner in the world, making huge waves and supporting changes that help mothers become mothers, but parents in general. And so I shy away from it. And I say that because I, I was so triggered. I had so many reactions around it. And there's a, I can talk about this from like six different sides. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to know, like if I'm checking in today, like what side am I on (laughs) today? I'll only know if I start talking, so I'll do that. I can say clearly that the only thing I've ever wanted in my life, clearly and said out loud, was to be a mom. Not to be a dancer, not to move to New York. None of that was like the thing. It was to be a mom. And that's different from a lot of other women who have experienced ambiguity around it or not. Or like how, That was sort of like always there. And I knew it would happen. And if it didn't happen naturally, I, just, I wasn't going to not experience motherhood. And so when I became pregnant, it was like the biggest gift I've ever been. It was like getting the one thing you've always wanted your whole life. It's terrifying because what if it gets taken away or that starts to come up? So I think what happened is I had to grapple with receiving the thing I've always wanted. That was the first big moment of being like, Oh, okay. I had, I wouldn't have expected you to say that. Okay. Yeah. Like, Oh wow. Like you got the thing you've always wanted whoa like and I have two so that was the other thing it's like I, I kind of felt like I wasn't finished and I said it out loud to my sister I want to have another baby she's like dude you have three kids in your house what do you think you live in New York and I was like no but I just do and then two weeks later super moon I was pregnant and then I received what I want like and it was a girl which I didn't I didn't care so much about gender but it was almost like it's that feeling of being like, how can this possibly be real? How can I possibly be given this? Like, it's, I can't bear it almost, like I, even in talking about it. So what happened, I think, was the churning drive has come to a completion. And so the motherhood that I'm experiencing is after having received the, like, the most amazing gifts like, of my life. And here I am. So now what? I've got it. Like, what's left? I guess to enjoy it, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's sort of where I stand. And I think what's interesting is now that that's sort of there. This, and this is part of where I am in my work, is now I am freed up 
that energetic drive or desire, the want. Yeah, that, like a calling. Not, not, it strikes me that it wasn't something you were always driving yourself toward, but it's like a siren call that like everything is always, you, you always know what, what direction that is. It was then, the lighthouse. Right? And then I got there. And then I was in, like, I was there. I was there. So now it's, what's interesting is there's this incredible, like I have an incredible husband who's like, do the thing, do what's next for you. And it's not that it's different because it's always, since I was five, been infatuated and passionate about human bodies and how they work and move and what happens in the unseen parts. And so now I have this sort of freed up, internal space not that it like i was explaining to melissa i'm still ice skates sweatpants lunch thing you know there's right it's a whole it's very full as a process right (laughs) but in the internal sort of spiritual space there is an opening of like you have knowledge you have experience you've been working with bodies and moving them and moving yourself and asking questions for a long time like you have a body of work here that you can start to offer and share and that's my next investigation is how do I want to do that? So there's lots of things I am passionate about. And somatic experiencing feels like a tool I'm putting in my box. I don't know that it's like, that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Yeah. Now what do you want to do with all these tools and experiences? What do you want to build? What do right. you want to bring? And so I'm, I'm sort of done. What's interesting. Here's the thing that this is the other thing that I can't believe, right, of, of my how incredibly grateful, lucky I am. I'm still dancing. I'm 43, and I'm still dancing and performing. I don't try. I'm not, like, begging to. I'm not, like, knocking on auditioned. It's not. It just keeps happening. I just keep mm. dancing. I've been doing it since I was five. Mm. And I nev- it's kind of like the friend that really loves you that you're like, you know, they're good. They're a good friend. But, like, you don't ever turn. You're like, oh, my God, you've fucking been here being my friend yeah, for so long. Oh, Maybe this is the thing. I don't know. So now I'm in this process of, in a dance process that is all consuming, and we do a really strong practice of authentic movement. And so every Tuesday for six hours, I'm with eight people, varies um, how many people are there if they have to come to ages 24 to 59. And we do a practice of authentic movement for the first part, and then we do an open investigation improvisational score for the second part of rehearsal. And it's like the umbrella over all this in a way. And again, I don't think that's the thing that I'm going to go out in the world and do. I don't Mm -hmm. know. I'm in this really weird place right now. You guys, I mean, I thought about this. I was like, oh, fuck, I'm going to do it. I have like, (laughs) I don't, like, what do you do? Oh, let's see. Because I'm in the boat. Mm-hmm. Do you know sailing? Yes. Like, okay, so I'm like a sailing yeah. kid. Oh, just, hey. So, <laughs> I love that you know sailing. Okay. Yes. So I'm pointing up wind. <laughs> the mainsail and jib are out, mm-hmm. but they're yeah. luffing, luffing, yes. luffing. And like you realize there's all this potential energy yeah. at any, like, so yeah. which get way. Get irons and off we go, right? Which way are you going to go? And I keep like, I don't want to move the tiller because there's so much energy that they're just, it's going to whoop the yeah. sails and I'll be going off in a direction. I don't know where I want to go. Yeah. So I don't want to move the tiller Two, I don't want it to be arbitrary. I want to have some other force support that choice. Mm-hmm. So I've stayed here. Lo- this is why I'm doing information. I'm, I'm, I'm stuck on sailing. I'm like, yeah, what's the sad? And <laughs> so then, yeah, right. They're all, so now I'm like, I was like madly researching like, 
all these different directions for all of this stuff I've accumulated to go? Like, where can I put all my tools and all this knowledge and all, where can mm-hmm. I start to funnel it? That's why I was like, stop. You're going to just do your schedule as it is for the next month and not think about doing more, not sign up for any workshops. Like I said, that's learning, what led to the information. You talked about the information fasting. Yeah. I have a voracious appetite for learning about this stuff. Like I literally <laughs> evil can't. twin separated at birth. <laughs> uh, I can't get enough. It's so, but I realized like you're full. It's Thanksgiving. Yes. You need to yes, digest. You need to digest. You need- so I'm not eating any more stuff. But what happened when I stopped What's interesting now is the wind has died down. Mm-hmm. I'm not moving. I still don't know which direction to point my boat. But the wind has died down. The water is calm. I'm like, oh. And then the terrifying thought of like, maybe this is it. Maybe you are doing it. I don't know. So I don't know that either. Of course, I would like to tie this all up into a bundle of like, now I teach workshops and I'm writing a book and then I'm going to go on tour and lead seminars about connecting and consent. And, you know, like I could work with children and trauma yeah. and blah, 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 blah. There's a million, but all of that feels like, there, it all feels like awesome options. Mm-hmm. I just, it has to have, I have to be moved in that direction by something other than some arbitrary cerebral choice. And I'm not being moved. So I have to just listen to that. And it's, terrifying so in the quiet sure it's calm but i'm not gonna lie it's not like oh my god it's so nice it is and i have like a wave of like fucking i don't know humpback whale surfacing right right next next to my boat where i'm like (gasps) i'm like aging work Mm. my career what my kids are gonna leave and i'll be left i mean there's all that starts and then i'm like you just and then it it swims away exhale right and then i wait so i'm waiting I don't know what's going to happen. So I, I want to go back to the part where you described, I'm going to call it the grand accomplishment, like the, the moment where you realize I'm at the lighthouse. Mm-hmm. And what I, my, I have a specific question. Yeah. So half of the other half of the people playing this game are never going to reach that same lighthouse. So like, there's no chance for me to ever actually have that same experience of having children. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering, is, do you have any suggestions for all of the guys and maybe the large percentage or small percentage, I don't know what it is, of women who never intend on doing that as well? How does one generally figure out what to do when you've reached the goal? So if I don't have that particular lighthouse, then does that mean I'm doomed or destined to wander around randomly? Yes. Or like how does... I was afraid you were going to say that. I'm just wondering if you can. Okay, so I mean, that's. I'm really glad you shared that. And I'm wondering, do you think that we can find anything that would be? A, I mean, information diet is a brilliant thing to suggest for anybody. Please turn your phones off. But I'm wondering if there's anything else that you might suggest for people to like. I don't know. I'm just thinking you have people who don't have the lighthouse. Yeah, or don't people have the lighthouse who... or people who aren't planning on having kids. Like we can yeah. talk about the specific lighthouse, or we can just say if you generally don't feel called to something, what do you do? I mean, right. I love that question. My brother and I are, are very close, and he's a little bit that guy. Like he's like, I don't get it. You've always had like a very clear idea of what you want. I've kind of had that, and he doesn't. And we have a lot of conversations around that. And I don't think it's really that different. That's the thing. I think it's if you don't have a dreaming desire. No, I think it's like, but it is sort of, I'm trying to remember times that I've felt that. Like I don't have a a point of orientation, right? It's almost like in SE we talk about that's the first thing is you orient. Where is the threat or where am I focusing my energy? Where is the thing? And if you don't have that point of orientation, it can feel very too spacious, floaty, arbitrary, 
threatening, right? Scary. But I think what it offers is a completely other way of experiencing being alive, which is more spacious, which is more, there's more sort of choice. There's less, there's less banking on that river. The river's wider. There's, and we need all kinds of variations on how people are experiencing life. And if we were all had these lighthouses, we're all orienting towards, we lose that texture of variation in ex- human experience, which is, what about the floating boat that isn't necessarily oriented anywhere, that, that is being taken on tides or airstreams or, or maybe isn't? I'm not trying to be like, so it's the same. No, I think it can be really hard. I think it can be painful to not feel, especially when we're in a culture that really rewards that kind of drive and focus. Yeah. So it's like my current project is X and now I work all in on the project and then, oh, it didn't succeed and then I'm a failure. And like that to me, I've been asking people more and more recently about self-talk and for me, self-talk is often a very negative thing. Like if I said to other people what I said to me, I would get arrested. Like Mm -hmm. it would not, would not be tolerated. So I'm like, okay, let's start paying attention to that Mm -hmm. internal talk. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you strike me as the kind of person who probably has already found that monster and went, that needs to be dealt with and, and have a space internally to just be okay with what you're doing currently, or you, you wouldn't be able to do an information, <laughs> an information mm-hmm. fast if you weren't okay with that. So I think that is a common thread that I've been finding is people who are highly driven also have a very negative self-talk. And that's just um, an mm-hmm. observation. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting one, right? Like what is the bank of your river? Mm-hmm. Is it, fear and negativity that's what's directing that flow yeah. or what's there's something to be said for that. you know rent has to be paid so that means i have to go get a job sure. and like, there's there's realities yeah. but then there's also the if we're going to stick with boat and sailing metaphors yeah. there's also the captain standing on the <laughs> standing there and making decisions like we don't want to go over there there's going to be shoals and right. like well you don't know that and maybe right. you should just stop steering so avidly and go play you know bridge mm-hmm. or something yeah and then see where we end up because a lot of people that I've talked to, not on the podcast, but it's generally in public, like, you know, random people, they're always, and a lot of them are in parkour space, and they're always saying things like, oh, I need to make this gym go, or I need to make my coaching business go, or I need to figure out how to make this kid's class go. And everybody's very goal-oriented. It's very Western. And I think it's a good thing, but it seems to me, my experience of being goal-driven like that is it's exhausting. It's like really, really exhausting. And then when you do, when I, when I find something that I set as a goal and I accomplish it, it's like, oh, I set the goal wrong. I should have, like, that was too easy. I should have made it harder. So Mm. it's like the very definition for me of like success, the definition of success is failure because Mm -hmm. I could have done more. So it's like, that's like a challenging thing. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was interesting because you basically literally said that you had succeeded when you had that experience of reaching the lighthouse. And that Mm -hmm. I'm like, there's somebody who actually feels that they have succeeded at that thing that they were chasing. Yeah. I mean, a few things. There's the other part of me that's like, yeah, but what have you, where's your, you know, if I look at my career stuff, right? And the gift for people like my brother and maybe you, if, if that's what you're describing, is that my interactions and my connections with my brother, let's say, allow me. Is your me, brother older or younger? He's older. My just, sister's just similar, but she's like, she's like Buddha. She, she's like on another level. I didn't mean the derailing. I was just curious because yeah. like the, the, my father Knowing. had an older sister and that relationship is completely different than having an older Well, brother. and you can also, what you can see the like younger sibling thing here. It really shows up. I'm aware of it because I have a, my daughter to my son. It's like he can do no wrong. And my son to my stepson's same. So there's a little bit of that. But the gift of the connection with him is that he brings into my strong orientation and focus 
he infuses it with space and choice. So he can, he, we can have a conversation and what he offers is like, well, is that real? Is that really sort of where you want to go? Hmm. Cause I haven't felt that. And then, then I get to sit with it and go, Oh, maybe I should dig into that. Maybe I don't, maybe I've just assumed I've always wanted that, but I don't know if I actually do want, you know, <laughs> like it. And that, that's what I mean about the, the beautiful variation in how we all do it. And the, the richness comes from those exchanges. And so, yeah, I was thinking too, when you were saying like a parkour gym and I have to pay rent and I was like, yeah, new baby, motherhood, right. feed the baby, get the thing, and get the laundry. Which is actually more important. Right? <laughs> well, but it is if there's, if you've employed people and their paycheck depends on your success of the, it's, mm-hmm. there's, there's a survival mechanism and these are all like models of animal behavior. Like when you're in survival mode, you just don't have access to other modes of thinking. Mm-hmm. You don't, you don't have creative mind. It's not available. You are in the process of making sure you're staying alive. We've touched on a, a number of really different topics, but along the way, we passed right over the question about permission and contact of people. And I think the first topic to talk mm-hmm. about okay. is embodiment. And it strikes me, I haven't seen you dance or move, but it strikes me that you have a particular skill for being able to Remain being embodied is the term that people use for this idea. And that you've also begun coaching people to help them do that. But as a mom, I'm going to guess that you would say that children don't need to learn that. And I'm just wondering what observations you would have about adults based on what you've seen in your children. I'm just kind of fishing. (laughs) It's the whole unlearning movement, really. Mm. Because so my son is this wiry monkey kid. <laughs> right. My daughter's amazing too, but he's, so he's eight okay. and he like, I can't tell you how difficult it is to just walk down the street. And if he has big feelings, he's literally jumping on two feet, forcing his like chest out and jumping and landing. And his whole body is experiencing the feeling. It's right there. And it can be hard to manage or hard to fit into a... Um, Stereotypical society, right? Or like a comfort zone for everyone else. Because I talk <laughs> a lot. I'm like, you are, you're also a white boy. Right. So like, you need to leave space for other people. Right. And it's a, it's a fine line to walk. But there's, I would never even question a child's capacity for embodiment, right? kids move. They learn how to move by themselves. They learn from watching. They learn. And then we sort of like siphon them into these like silos of movement education. And then they learn the right ways to move. And that can be dance. That can be soccer. That can be like, and it's not that I think skills are incredible, of course, but what gets lost a little bit is whatever was making him jump down the street in excitement or anxiety becomes uncoupled like that becomes like the feeling is separate from the movement now mm-hmm. because now I've um, now I'm training and learning skills and I'm learning the way we talk about is how to move but these kids know how to move and what they lose and what I lost and what I'm learning how to regain is choice like what if I took away the sort of societal implications of me jumping, thrusting my chest out down the street in anxiety. If I could just freely, (laughs) I'm not saying we should, we have to make space. We live in a dense city. I totally don't think it's not like that's the answer, but there is something about being able to touch in and feel 
the bodily experience of that feeling like, whoa, that is like right now. I can feel like I'm talking about something that I have a lot of feelings about. I can feel it up in my chest. I feel warm. Like yeah, that's everything in, changes. But just because I brought language to it doesn't mean I'm more embodied. Mm-hmm. And that's the sort of mystery about children that's interesting to me is they're embodied without being embodied, without language of embodiment. Mm. And I think what can happen, so the immediacy of their living experience is right there. And then we sort of, because of culture, and it's, it's a necessity at some level, we learn how to edit all that. He's learning how to sit in school. He's learning how, skills that allow him to play in culture, that allow mm-hmm. him to be part of a larger system. And that's a, that's a good thing. At the same time, of course, there's deep sorrow in me in seeing him have to edit his physicality and only allow for it in certain areas. So you can do that when you're at parkour class. Or you can, yeah, you can do that only in this venue, on this jungle gym, the kind right. of thing. Yeah. So how do we? Uh, I, I mean, we the we everybody other than me. But how do we change the way that we create those spaces for children and teens and adults? And so maybe like if we zoom out and think about the teenage parkour class where the kids come in and they have tons of energy, but they're in these societal spaces where they're let's call it confined expectations and then they come to parkour class and then the coaches have to sort of talk them out of it they have to like explain to them that they're basically teaching them to be embodied again though nobody says that but they're basically teaching them to move again except that they are not like how how as a coach in your personal practice how do you actually facilitate that transition for people to come back to where they were or to undo what they've been taught or like how to convert what they've been taught into a tool that they can use only when they choose. So how, how do you actually facilitate that transition yeah. or that, that regrowth? I work with impulse and I think there are two ways in my practice of authentic movement. You close your eyes. Someone is watching to make sure you're safe and you respond to impulse. It took me years to really know what impulse was because there's so many layers of training, even to the point of like, well, if I start dancing beautifully, I'm just doing my training. But wait, but that's my impulse. I want to do that. But I had to get, there's so much um, thinking and conversation that has to start to, doesn't have to go away. I just have to be, like be not, stay with not it. Bring that with it, not bring that in. You can't though, right? It's like, I can't choose whether my mind is active or not. It just is or isn't. But there's a sort of spaciousness around it or a waiting that eventually there's an impulse. Like eventually your body will do something. If you lay on the floor, and I always tell people this when we do authentic movement, and they're like, I don't feel anything. I'm like, then don't fucking do a thing. Lay on the floor. <laughs> eventually you, you will move. Eventually you will have to pee yeah. or, or you fall leave asleep, or, or you you'll move. sleep. Right. You will move something. You will move. And that will be. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm standing, but I don't actually know how I got here. So what I'm inviting you to do is to feel the desire to stand and follow that all the way through. That's kind of what I want to teach. And so the idea behind this, and I've had my own wrestling with this, which I'll talk about in a minute, is that you are offered choice in that moment. So I can feel the impulse to, to stand. I've been laying here. I really want to stand up. I can answer that impulse. Or I can just feel the impulse. Mm-hmm. And then something 
else might happen. That might go away. Might go be away. replaced by another one. Something. And so I think for children, you're talking about, I don't coach children. I've, I teach like a movement. I do like a nature ninja. There's a bunch of things I do with kids. One of them is called nature ninjas. We go outside, do this with another mom. And we do, it's like a day camp of movement exploration and being outside and picking up garbage and stuff like that. Another thing I do is a real, with little littles, it's called reconnect for littles. And it's, it's movement and yoga and singing and meditation and it's seeing like 33 year olds laying down like this, like getting hand massages. I mean, really, that's enough. That's one thing. And then there's like stuff where I'm experimenting with, with is like with older kids and moving more. And so one of the things I did, and this might tie into your question, I went to a school and I taught authentic movement to eight and to 11 year olds, which is weird. I'm like, what are they going to do? And what I found so interesting to me, because what I realized is these kids are given space, but they're not given choice. And when you ask mm-hmm. a kid, like, close your eyes and respond to impulse, like, do what you want, do. they either, there's a, a bunch of variations. That's what's sort of cool about kids is, like, it's they're so loud. <laughs> oh, but the, and the difference is, like, really extreme. But I watched this kid jump up and down and land with straight legs, like, that's wrong. You need to bend. You know, like that's right, the right, voice in my head. Right. And he's just like slamming and, and doing it. Rep- and like his whole body sort of like vibrates and his eyes are closed. And I'm watching him do this like over and over. And in the most visceral way, I know that kid is working something out. Mm-hmm. And this is what his body needs to do. And I don't need to know why. And maybe if it's harmful, I might bring that up. <laughs> but like at a certain, he's safe. Like he's, he's okay. Right. It's, it's fine. But like, let him do this. That was like the biggest feeling I had was like, he needs to do this. Or the kid who, oh my God, closed, so sweet, closed his eyes. He was sitting like crisscross applesauce and he took 10 minutes and he just would scoot his butt and then scoot his butt a little more. Like the tiniest movements I've ever seen a child do. It was fascinating. I have no idea what was going on. It's not my job to know. What he was doing But what what I saw was like, choice was like they know what they need to do at some systemic level nervous system emotional system spiritual there's something happening here that needs to happen and we need to provide these spaces for kids to do this because i'm working with adults who cannot tell you what their impulse is they don't know and then they think that they're not they're afraid to move unless it's right Especially with me as a dancer watching. They're like, mm-hmm. oh, God, I don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to see everything I do that's wrong. Right. <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, I don't, to refine impulse, to refine like curiosity and exploration. And I see that in parkour. I see like, what would you do here? Like, those are some really beautiful questions. And those are some spaces where I see that being asked. I'm interested in bringing it, bringing it into more, more spaces where there are children, more supportive spaces where what do you want to do even like that doesn't look anything like parkour, like what that kid was doing? Because I do trust our bodies have, have a wisdom and are operating on levels and in ways that we're still just starting to understand. And I trust it. I really trust the animal there. And I want, I want to support the vibrancy to show up the vibrancy of animal body to be there in a safe way like I don't want someone to while out and hit somebody like if you want to talk about consent right, right. like 
but be their communities for that. And that is what they are exploring. There are mm-hmm. questions where like, you know, sensation or impact or they're exploring in safe ways what that is. And that's great. I'm all for it. Like whatever version of exploration suits your system, find it and give that to yourself. Weena, I think this is a good point to say. I love to collect stories. I'm passionate about stories because when people tell stories, you learn things about both the story they choose enlightens who that person is and how they tell the story and what they choose to talk about. So thinking about everything we've said so far, I don't even know what topic to suggest, but if there's any story that you'd like to share, I'd love to hear it. Mm -hmm. So this story comes up because I sort of like, I claim to be on this journey of self-knowledge and really know myself. And I had a moment of really having, which I love the moment where the rug gets pulled out and you're like, Oh my God. (laughs) Oh my God. And so I wanted to tell the story because it was also sort of illuminates what we were talking about, about the body as this incredible resource for discovery. And it's the thing. It's the thing. You are a body that has lived. I am a body that has lived 43 years and my body and myself have experienced 43 years of life so far. And so I have decidedly become skilled at recognizing my traumas, my dysregulation. However, I was in a (laughs) somatic experiencing training and we, you do this thing where you break off after you sort of sit down and eat up all this information and they explain stuff. You quickly are in groups practicing on each other. And they typically say, like, you know, don't choose highly charged material. This isn't, we're practicing this, being a practitioner, not Doing, working out right, our therapy. Our <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is meta, right? No, we're I not totally supposed to have, be doing yeah, this yeah. is meta, right? And I'm not, like, how do you do that again? But whatever. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I got, I got, what, oh, I got, oh, it was about this idea of trauma and how it, how it hit, affects your nervous system. We were practicing something and we sit down. And so the practitioner student in front of me says, what story do you have? Like, what do you want to share? And I was like, I actually don't have anything coming up right now. He's like, cool. What do you notice right now? Just work with whatever's happening right now. It's like, well, sort of body scanning. I'm like, I have this while I'm noticing like a, a real kind of tension, like a grabbing on this side of my neck of my shoulder and he's like, okay, so let's just stay there. Let's just bring our attention there and just be with that. And I'm like, yeah, actually, it, it's becoming more intense. And it's sort of like going up my head and I'm wrapping around. And I feel like I'm, like I'm now my breathing's affected. I'm really, he's like, okay, so just slow down. Let's just be. And I put my hand on my collarbone. I was like, oh, fuck. I broke my collarbone when I was like four months old. And it was this whole unfolding. I fell off a deck on my head, cracked my collarbone. My mom ran down the hill, thought I was dead, totally not breathing, right? This incredible force of impact. Didn't start crying until I was in the car. I think at that time, it was in the country in North Georgia. So I had like a weird, my dad was a surgeon. It was all fine. I'm fine. Here's the part that blew my mind. Impact. Where has Weena gone for impact? Oh, right. Dancing over and over and over again, slamming into things, slamming into things over and over again. My nervous system was working really hard to fix that. 
to re-regulate that experience in my body. And I had not seen it. It's never, I mean, I don't have a memory of it. So it's not like it's on my mind of like, I remember, I don't remember. I have no, my body does. And you've heard your mom tell the story. I've heard my mom tell the story. But at some level in my body, there's a desire to, that's what we do with trauma. Mm. We want to, we want to get it right. We want to change the ending or we want to figure out a way to heal what happened. And so in unconscious and in bodily driven ways, we find ourselves in situations where we're recreating the trauma and we don't even know we're doing it. And it, I remember a very specific time when I was with Streb, and this is why it came up that we were performing at the Joyce Theater. It was a three-week run, and we had eight shows a week, which is insane for that work. You shouldn't be doing eight shows <laughs> of that work a week. It was the second or third week, and I was kneeling down at the wall. It was my favorite piece was wall, where you run up and you slam it in a bunch of different shapes, and people, and it feels really good. And I run up, and I... I slam, I can't remember what, something happens in my neck, and I can't look up to grab the top of the wall, so it's terrifying, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just weeping, because the show is like in 20 minutes, and what am I going to do? And it was just, it's like over and over again, these opportunities to kind of let this mysterious process of reparation naturally wanting to happen in our body, like finding ways to sort of support that healing and it wasn't the time or I did heal. I'm fine. Like, that's what I mean. It's like, it's all fine. It's going to get dealt with. Even if you die with it, your body's going to decompose into the soil and somehow some critter's going to eat it. It's going to get dealt with. Your shit will get dealt with your traumas. Like whether you decide to do it or become aware of it or not, it's, you know what I mean? It has like, an expiration date. Yeah, right? It's going to come out where bodies of fluid that are like, eating, taking in fluids, expelling fluids, like we cut, we bleed. Stuff, processes are coming in and out, digesting, eating, digesting, thinking, speaking. It's this constant process. And so those little hiccups or where the, the hose is kinked or those holdups, knots of tension or wherever those points of contraction are, which I would label as some form of trauma or expression of it, will eventually not be that. You can unkink the hose, hopefully. That would be my preferred way to do it, just because I want to maybe have flow back in that part of my body or life again. Like, I want to know what that's like, but maybe I'm not going to get to all of them. Or And that's cool, too. It's just, you do the best you can, I guess. But that was, like, such a stark moment of, like, how have I never made this connection? It was, like, blew me away. Yeah. Weena, is there anything else that you'd want to share? I'd be curious to know just like what are you doing tomorrow, next week, next month? You've shared a ton of things you're passionate about and a ton of knowledge and experience. And I'm just wondering like, okay, let's kind of just let you zoom in and talk about Weena for a second. Like what are you doing next? Mm-hmm. Let's see. Today's Wednesday. Is it? Yes, it is. Okay. <laughs> what is Thursday, Friday? So as I've mentioned, I'm in this place of holding. So my current life, is I run around outside with a client. I see people in my office on Wednesdays where I do session work. I run six-week programs. I'll probably do one in the spring for kids. I have that outdoor nature ninjas camp coming up and dancing every Tuesday. We have a couple residencies coming up. I'm not sure 
in the fall near Mass Mocha, but there's stuff like that coming. And I have my, I start my second year of SE at the end of the month. So that's the big one. And of course, the final question, three words to describe your practice. Mm. Vulnerability, power. I'll tell you what came to my mind. And then I was like, that's so cheesy. Love. That's what came up. Thank you very much, Rena. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been fun to be here. This was episode 41. For more information, go to moversmindset.com slash 41. And there's more to the Movers Mindset Project than just this podcast. Visit our website for more free content, to sign up for our newsletter, or to join the Movers Mindset community. Thanks for listening.